The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to take your Bibles now, if you'll open them to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. And before I begin any explanations of things in the introduction to this sermon tonight, I'd like for us to read this entire first chapter of Leviticus. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are the Mosaic Law concerning the five sacrifices uh, of Israel in their worship of the one true living God. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse number 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you shall bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priest Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall... Put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priest Aaron's sons shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. And he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. And he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, And the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of the fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar." And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Our subject this evening and for several weeks, is the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Sacrifice is a major part of our religion, uh, the foundation of Christianity, 
is found in the Old Covenant, which has pictures of the life and the death of Jesus Christ in a system of sacrifices. Now, in these days, when we speak of sacrifice, it's not usually about giving up our physical lives, or it's not about killing an animal and draining its blood and making ritualistic offerings. And we can be thankful for that, that we don't have to make that kind of a sacrifice because that really doesn't taste good on the modern church attendee's palate. If we were to make those kinds of sacrifices in the parking lot on Sundays, I can assure you we would draw a lot of attention from our neighborhood. Uh, we do, perhaps anyway, because of our strong stand on, especially on some moral issues, but I think if we sacrifice an animal in the parking lot and burned it on an altar, that would probably just about do us in here in this community. So we don't need to make those kinds of sacrifices. We don't make a Levitical sacrifice because Christ came. He came to fulfill the law and to be the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And once-for-all means that by his death, he ended all other sacrifices that were types and shadows of the life that he would live and of the death that he would die. So you don't need to worry that the next holiday or feast day that you'll need to uh, bring an animal to church and then we'll kill it in a bloody mess and burn it outside in the parking lot. Now since we don't have to do that any longer, then what is the purpose of us taking our time, digging into the Old Testament to find out why Israel made all of these different sacrifices? Well, Hebrews told us the reason, we looked at that last week, that they were shadows, that they are types of something else. These are symbols, they're, they're uh, illustrations that teach us about the Messiah that would come to save Israel and then bring Israel into a glorious kingdom. Now the Old Testament sacrifices will, uh, can still teach us about Christ today, and they do so in ways that would be impossible to find out about him unless we know what the Old Testament has to say about this and uh, compares it, uh, and the New Testament compares that, and we find out about Jesus in these things. Now, as I said, they are symbols, and symbols mean nothing unless they have an objective reality. A symbol is not the real thing. It stands for the real thing. It points to the real thing. And for that reason, the New Testament uses symbols, but the symbols are never able to do or the Old Testament uses those, but the, but the symbols are never able to do what the real thing does. So the question that needs to be determined in this is, what do the symbols represent? What's the real thing that's depicted by the symbol? And the answer, in the larger sense, is Jesus Christ. And there's more than one of these, because the life and the ministry and the death of Christ are multifaceted. And so one type of offering would not be enough to show us everything that there is to know about Christ. And so there are five Old Testament argue, uh, um, offerings, and there are variations of those that take place at different times, and they represent Christ in different ways. A good parallel to that is how Christ is described in four gospel accounts. Each of the gospel authors speak of the same person, but when you read them, they give us a different view of Christ. Matthew talks about Christ as the promised king. And uh, he, so he opens up his gospel account with the genealogy of Christ that shows his legal authority to be the heir uh, to the throne of God, to the throne of David. 
Matthew is the only gospel author that mentions the wise men who came looking for the one who would be the king of the Jews. Mark begins differently. He briefly mentions John the Baptist, and then he quickly moves into the inauguration of Jesus' ministry at his, ba- at his baptism. And then from there, Christ is pictured as the one who came to serve. And so Mark doesn't emphasize kingship, but rather he emphasizes the servant heart of Jesus. And then Luke gives still another viewpoint. He saves the genealogy for uh, the last part of the third chapter, and he prefers to start with the baby who's born as the son of Mary, impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Luke emphasizes the manhood of Jesus. Then we would expect that John would follow that up with another perspective, and he does by showing the other side of that hypostatic union, that he is also the Son of God, that he is the living Word who came down from God in and became human flesh. And he says he's full of grace and truth because he is the perfect God. And so you see, each of those has, each writer has a different viewpoint. Now it's all the same Jesus, but Jesus is too much to be explained by looking at him from only one point of view. And so what we have to do is to go all the way around him. Humanity cannot obscure his deity. Deity cannot obscure his humanity. His servanthood cannot overshadow his uh, kingship, and neither is kingship his servanthood. And so just as no gospel author gives a single aspect of Christ's life, so there is no single offering the Old Testament gives us to show every part of what Christ would do. But be sure of this, all of these sacrifices will point to Christ. And so as soon as you see offering, don't think about animal, don't think about substance, but rather think, how does that picture the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, as we look back at Old Testament times, we are happy that we don't have to make these sacrifices. Our attitude towards a sacrifice is much different now than it was then in the uh, in the Old Testament times, the Hebrews and all other nations were accustomed to making animal sacrifices, and the heathen nations would even make human sacrifices. And we look back at that today, and we, we wonder how they could do that. But the only change from then until now in that regard is the influence of Christianity. Animal sacrifice was a part of religion from the very beginning. And God set the precedent for that by killing animals to clothe Adam and Eve when they realized their nakedness. And God did that for their good to show them the nakedness and of sin and shame is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And from that point, from the very beginning, sacrifice became a way of life. In the first generation, Abel brought a lamb of sacrifice. And he did that because Adam was his religious instructor and so Adam showed him what God did for him and the Bible says that Abel was a righteous man and Jesus said that about him righteous Abel but it wasn't long until sacrifice was perverted and no doubt by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11 there were ritualistic heathen sacrifices that were made at the Tower of Babel now the thing that that didn't change was the belief that satisfaction must be made. Even though we're talking, uh, whether we're talking about the right kind of sacrifice or the wrong kind of sacrifice of the heathens, still there was the idea satisfaction has to be made to God or to the gods. And so that thing of sacrifice was ingrained in man from the very beginning. So what is it that changed? Well, if sacrifice is still needed, 
And man knows that you still have to appease God and sacrifices where you routinely made all of the time, then what's different now that people don't make sacrifices any longer? Why aren't we making routinely, routinely making sacrifices across America and the world? Is it because we just suddenly started loving animals too much to do it anymore? No, it's because Christ died. And the influence of that truth spread around the world so that anyone who makes a sacrifice now is thought to be crazy. That's a barbaric thing to do. And so if animal activists, rights activists, want to thank someone for this, thank Christ and Christians, because it's Christianity that influenced the entire world so that we now think anybody who makes that animal sacrifice is some sort of an ignorant barbarian, even by those who aren't Christians. But looking at this text, going back 3,500 years, an animal sacrifice was normal. It was sacred. It was holy. It represented a relationship with God that was to be faithfully maintained by ongoing sacrifices. And so these sacrifices were never final. You don't find one in the Old Testament that's considered to be the last sacrifice that needs to be made. And so it wasn't until Christ came and he died and they arose from the dead that the sacrifices ended. And if Christ had not risen, then this is what we would do today. We would still be out here making animal sacrifices because we would still think we've got to satisfy God. Now once again, a single type of sacrifice could not picture every aspect of Christ just as one gospel doesn't show every part of him. Let me just briefly give you a couple of examples and we may look at these two examples later on in more depth in other sermons. But a couple of examples of this, of how one sacrifice or one animal can't picture Christ entirely, uh, is the scapegoat. I think you're familiar with the scapegoat. That's a term that comes from Leviticus chapter 16. And in this offering, there were two goats that were killed, or rather there were two goats involved in the offering. One of them was killed and the other goat was set free. Scapegoat literally means goat of departure. So why are there two goats? Well, it's because it was impossible to picture the complete truth of that sacrifice with only one goat. One goat died as an offering for sin, but the other one was released when sins were confessed on its head. Both of those picture Christ's work, but one aspect is that he died to pay the penalty of our sins, and the other is that he died to take away the guilt of our sins. So we have propitiation that's expressed in the death of the first goat, while expiation is expressed in letting the other live goat go free. Propitiation means satisfaction for sin, while expiation means the taking away of guilt. Now, Likewise, there was another offering that involved two birds. One bird was killed and the other was let fly away. Now, the meanings in that sacrifice could not be pictured by only one animal. And that's really one of the shortcomings of animal sacrifices. One animal can never be an exact parallel to Christ. And so a dead animal can't fly away. But that's what you need to picture in a resurrection. So you have one animal that dies and one animal that flies away. So you have the death and the resurrection that are pictured. Now in these sacrifices then we see the unparalleled wisdom of God. I mean who could illustrate things this way? Who would think of these things but God himself? And they do show the marvelous work of Christ. 
Now this evening, I, I, what I want to do is talk to you about the first sacrifice that's in Leviticus chapter 1. Making a sacrifice was not barbaric. The animal is God's creature. It's God who told them to do this. And so he gave them five offerings. The burnt offering, the meat offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And this chapter, chapter number one, is about the burnt offering. Before we go further, we need to look at verse number nine. Leviticus 1, verse number nine. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, do you see that it says that the offering is to be a sweet savor unto the Lord? Now, we need to talk about that before we go further. Each of the offerings fall into two classifications. Either it is a sweet savor offering, or it is a non-sweet savor offering. The burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering are sweet savor. The sin offering and the trespass offering are non-sweet savor. Well, what does that mean? Well, savor is a word that you find often in the scriptures. Uh, in case you don't understand it, savor refers to smell. The term is, is metaphorical. It smells good. That's a smells good. It smells, uh, a sweet savor offering is a smells good, the the smell is pleasing, the smell's bad. Non-sweet savor offering is just what it sounds like. Only we're not actually talking about what the offering smelled like physically because nobody could tell what kind of offering was just by the fact you smelled it. That didn't make the difference. But the smell refers, refers to the way that God regards the offering. One is pleasant and the other is repulsive. One is a good aroma to God, one is a sacrifice that God must turn away from, or what it represents, God must turn away from. Now, maybe you're still a little bit confused, so just keep on listening. The word is also found in the New Testament, and it's there because of the Old Testament. So when you see savor in the New Testament, it automatically sends you back to the Old Testament for its reference, and it referred to these offerings. For example, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice for God as a sweet-smelling savor. Let's put that scripture up, if you would, so everybody can see that. Ephesians 5, verse number 2, that it is a sacrifice to God, he says, for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, how are you to know what God has in mind when he said that Christ's offering is a sweet-smelling savor if you didn't know anything about the Old Testament? I mean, the phrase has no practical meaning, except you know the Old Testament. You'd be stumped by that unless someone said, turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 1. Now do you see in that verse, he says that we're to live our lives as Christ loved us. How? By being a sweet-smelling savor to God. And he means a life that is like the Son of God, a life that was pleasing to God. And so you need to know that connection to make sense of the Bible. Now, let me, let me help you to to make sense of the difference between smells good and smells bad, the sweet-smelling savor offerings typified Christ's perfection. That is, what Christ is in himself. Sin is not pictured in a sweet-smelling offering because Christ had no sin. He was perfect. A non-sweet-smelling offering, non-sweet savor, is different. Sin is pictured in those offerings. 
Christ is the sin burden bearer. He took our sins on him. And so in a non-sweet selling, uh, smelling offering, the, it's there because, it's called that because sin is repulsive to God. It represents sin on the Son of God, where, where God had to turn his back as he did when Christ bore our sins on the cross. God turned his back when he poured out his wrath on his Son in those three hours of suffering in the darkness on the cross. And he did that. God turned his back because sin is repulsive. And so that aspect of the cross is a non-sweet-smelling savor offering. It's a bad smell. Each of the offerings is substitutionary. Each of them is on the behalf of sinners, but in different ways. In the sweet savor offerings, Christ makes up for our imperfections by giving us His perfection. Christ makes up for our lack of love. He makes up for our lack of devotion and for our lack of dedication. He makes up the failure that we have to worship God in the way that we should. And what we find there is just a marvelous picture of the great doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness for our justification. We stand before God, perfect in His eyes, because Christ is perfect and clothed us with His righteousness. And so we are at the same time both justified and sinners, and we can't be both unless Christ's righteousness stands good for us. Well, the non-sweet savor offerings are also substitutionary, Christ died for our sins, that is, in our place. He died the death that we should die. He was smitten to death for our disobedience. Now we see then, according to verse number 9, that the burnt offering is a sweet-smelling, a sweet-savor offering. And so when it says sweet-savor, you know that somehow in this offering it's going to show how Christ makes up for something that we lack that he will substitute his goodness for our failures. Romans 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's Paul's connection to Psalm chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is nobody that can connect to God without Christ. He is the perfection that you need to approach holy God. There's an impossible gulf that exists between us and God, just like Abraham, when he talked with the rich man who was in hell, he said, the chasm is too wide, the gulf is too big, we can't come to you and you can't come to us. And only Jesus is the one that can bridge that gap. He fills that void between us and God by his perfection. Now that's just marvelous truth. And, and it causes me just to pause and think about this when I, when I say these things, how I preached on this subject 12 years ago. At that time, when we first started, started into these things, I got a lot of stares. I think it was appreciated, but those many sermons on the tabernacle and all the offerings and, and all of that were new to this congregation. I mean, those were subjects that were not the normal fare that you would hear about. Oh, sure, there's some understanding of, of some basic things, but I don't think anybody had it in their mind to tie the tabernacle to core fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, who, who knew that you could find the imputation of Christ's righteousness in 
the tabernacle. And where would you be able to find these outstanding doctrines of grace that we preach? Well, over these past 12 years since that series on the tabernacle, the paradigm has changed. And so when I speak to you about the doctrines of grace, now you understand the references. Now, most of you have had that truth opened up to you. And so now you have a different view of God than you had before. And the doctrines of grace are like taking a searchlight at, at SFO and shining them on Jesus Christ to light Him up. And they, they show us Christ and everything else fades away into the darkness. All human accomplishments fade away. The right to brag about any part of our salvation, about any work that we might do, that's all gone. These doctrines take the spotlight off of man. But we always want it on us, and that's why you hear or you see people cry their crocodile tears whenever they want to defend free will. That we must determine. We, we must determine. We're the ones that decide. We have the right to say what we will and will not do. That's our right, not God's. But here we see everything fades away in the sovereignty of God when you speak of the doctrines of grace. And we don't pay lip service to that word sovereignty. We believe it. Our church doctrine supports it in every way. Now, the former pastor of the church didn't agree with me on this, but he did say this to me. He said, I appreciate your doctrine because there is no doubt that it exalts nobody but God. I'm content with that. I don't know about you. Now, in these past 12 years, what you've done is to acquiesce to the doctrines of grace, and with that comes deeper spiritual understanding. And once you get that down, then the, New, the Old Testament, New Testament takes on deeper meaning, things begin to make sense. Now you don't have to explain things away. It's just like when I, when I preached on the atonement a few weeks ago, and where the Scripture says that Christ died to reconcile us to God, the question is, did He do that? Did He reconcile us to God? Well, yes, He did. Everyone that He died for is reconciled to God. So I don't have to explain why there are people in hell that if Christ died for them. Now, the, these offerings will show you the impossibility of atonement except for those that are redeemed by them. And so we'll get to all of that. And I, I just had to say that because your understanding of the Scripture has changed. And so now when we talk about these things, the, the study of these things, it's not eye-popping to you any longer. It's not like you've never heard anything like this before. And so what you hear now will strengthen your faith in these scriptures of Old and New Testament. A couple of months ago, uh, Eric said something that was typical. He said that once he saw and understood this, he said, it's like you can't deny that you see it on nearly every page of the Bible. That nearly every passage is a testament to the doctrine. And how does that happen? Well, here's the key to it. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Word. And when you get those foundational principles right, when you stop thinking about what you did and you focus on everything that God did, everything that God did from the beginning, when you see that the Bible is His story, not your story, that's when the sovereignty of God begins to come out on every page of the Scriptures. But we need to get on now because we need to talk about the burnt offering. I just needed to tell you those things, and now we need to get a start in this. Now, number one in your outline is the object of the offering. The object of the offering. It is sweet smelling. Well, now that we understand sweet savor or sweet smelling, 
we know that this offering is not about sin. Now, you need to be careful about this because you're wrong if you think that every time that you see an animal sacrifice, that that is a picture of Christ's death to take away sin. So if you are a teacher, you need to know the text that you're dealing with. What is it that that text is trying to tell you? And not every offering that you see in the Bible is about Christ taking away sin. Now, the sweet savor offering in this will learn something about the perfection of Christ. That the primary object of this offering is to teach that Christ was wholly dedicated to the Father's will. There's a New Testament connection there. You see that, don't you? Because that's what Jesus said. I came to do the Father's will. Sometimes this offering is referred to as the whole burnt offering. Why? Well, as we read it, we see that the entire animal was consumed in the fire. Now, this is just a side note, but it shows you another reason why there must be more than one sacrifice. If, if, if we read this chapter and we were to say, well, this is all that we need to know about sacrifice, then we would have a really hard time with other parts of Scripture. Now, at this point, what I have in mind is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. He said, do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now, I don't want to go into that scripture again except to say this, that in that, Paul could not have been referring to the burnt offering. And so it's obvious there are other sacrifices that did not consume the whole animal because there were portions of it that were to be given to the priest for their support. That's the way that they made their living. They partook of the altar. And so they're given other portions of the sacrifice. And I think maybe you can see the New Testament application that you are not to consume everything that you make on yourself, but that you are to come freely and offer your tithes and offerings in the church so that God's ministers can have an income and continue to serve in the ministry. But this offering is the whole burnt offering. Every part of it's consumed in the fire. And that represents some wonderful pictures. So what are they? Well, first, the first picture we have is that Christ gave his all. That's the symbolism. Jesus fulfilled the offering with his life, that he gave everything. John six thirty eight. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. Now, that doesn't mean that there was another will that is a contrary will in Christ. No, he had a human will and he had a divine will, but they weren't contrary to one another. The plan that Christ would come was a Trinitarian plan. It was a covenant that's made in the Godhead from before the foundation of the world, which, of course, is another one of those great aspects of the, of the doctrines of grace. Not to do mine own will, he said. That's not an expression of reluctant submission, but it's an expression of outstanding singular devotion to the plan of the Father. Well, the Father and the Son were in perfect agreement about what Jesus would do, and he was perfectly capable of performing all the duty that is required to do. Now, you get that part then? He came to do his Father's will. Well, I could take you to John 17 in which he said he brought all to the Father that he was supposed to bring, that he didn't leave any behind. 
John 17, 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This offering is substitutionary because we are incapable of doing the Father's will. We have a sinful fallen nature that prevents us, but not so with Christ. He didn't have the fallen nature. And so he substitutes for our fallen nature by giving us the benefits of his perfect obedience. And so the entire animal went up in the sacrifice, in the fire, because that's what Jesus did. All of him, everything that he was, was given up to God. He didn't hold anything back. Now in Philippians 2, we read that Paul says that that Christ poured out everything for us. He divested himself of his glory to come to this earth. He earned righteousness by his perfect obedience, and that righteousness becomes ours by faith in him. Now, many people believe that this offering also stands for self-dedication. And this may be what Paul had in mind in Romans 12, verse 1, when he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, the living sacrifice corresponds to the complete consumption of the burnt offering. In other words, what it's saying is that the Christian is to offer all of himself to God. Everything that he is, his soul and his spirit belong to the Lord. And so he wants to be used by the Lord in every way that God sees fit to use him. And so he desires to have a life like Christ where he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, dedicated to God, and holy, H-O-L-Y, dedicated to God. Now you can see it again when Jesus said that we are to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. And that is an offering that smells good to God. He loves a holy life. And so it gives a pleasing aroma because when we live that way, we show ourselves most like His Son whose life was pleasing to Him. And what are we? We are the sons of God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we, uh, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And then let me also say that this is a sweet smell that fills up your senses, because you, you think about the Old Testament the Old Testament showed this picture 1,500 years before Christ came. God teaches you things that you cannot know unless you compare it to the symbols. Well, now we need to look at an important matter in verse number 4. Now, I hope that you're paying attention. You're not getting lost here because this is not real easy stuff, some of what I've been telling you. But Leviticus 1 verse 4 says something that we have to pay very close attention to. It says, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Pay attention to the word atonement. Now, in our study of the atonement on Lord's Supper evenings, we talked about how that Christ is a substitute for sin, and that his death satisfied God for that penalty that was owed for breaking his law. That's what we call penal substitution. That's Substitution satisfying a penalty. That's the thing that Charles Finney denied. Now, as a penal substitute, satisfaction was made for reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is most often the way that we think of the atonement. And we see that in Romans chapter 5 where atonement and reconciliation are used as synonymous terms. And so there in that scripture it's using it as a transaction in which we are declared not guilty before God, which is a forensic transaction. That means a legal transaction because of the payment of a penalty. However, we've just learned that this is a sweet savor offering, didn't we? And so it can't be that a payment for sin is being considered here. So that presents a problem if we don't understand that verse 4 gives us a different view of atonement. Now, I know that every one of you caught that as we went through read verse 4 a few minutes ago, didn't you? You saw that exactly. This is coming. There's something wrong here. So what's the solution to that? Well, the solution is that the atonement is more comprehensive than just the sin offering. Now, in Leviticus 4, verse 20, the subject there is sin offering, and there the word atonement is used. It says, And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. That sin offering that he's talking about there is non-sweet savor. And so it makes sense to us to see atonement used in that passage. Now, returning then to the burnt offering, atonement must be considered in a different way here because it's sweet savor, and thus it's not a sin offering. Here, it means to satisfy God completely by a life of perfection. It's not a penalty that's paid, but it's a picture of the way that Christ satisfied God with a life of devotion. This is satisfaction of obedience, not satisfaction of debt. Satisfaction of debt is put in terms of redemption. And this is why we speak of particular redemption when we're discussing the extent of the atonement. But this offering is not about redemption. This is about living in holiness before God, giving ourselves completely to God. And since we can't do it, Christ must cover that shortcoming. And that's why it's sweet-smelling. Now, secondly, this offering objectively shows that Christ's suffering is not shared. Verse number 4 again, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now see, it shall be accepted for him. That tells us that the sacrificer, the one who offers, does not need to do anything to help. He can't help. Why? Because his righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 1 verse 6, From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Can I say this as well? That your free will is also as filthy rags? Because you always tend to evil. You're not going to choose good. It's not until God changes the will that any person comes to Christ. Now this sacrifice, this offering, is all that God required. The animal is sufficient. The offerer does not come and say, well, let me put my hand into the fire too. Now the animal might not be enough, so let me suffer a little bit too. No, Christ didn't need a little bit more. Atonement does not need anything of the offer from the offer to make it work. 
Consuming the entire animal is sufficient because it shows that Christ would do it all. Now understand this, as we've taught before, that faith does not activate the atonement. That's what most people believe. That this is what makes everything work. You mix faith with it, and now the atonement works. No, faith does not activate the atonement. Christ's work is sufficient all by itself, and you don't have anything to offer Him anyway. Now, I've got more to say about this, but we do need to end this evening, and so I'm going to end it on this note. This reminds me of the reason that I don't like the term altar in connection with the New Testament church. Now, just as a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ ended the need of animal sacrifices, it also ended the need for an altar. There is no mass that said in this church because Christ was sacrificed once for all. And with the mass, there is also penance that goes along. Penance says that there is more that needs to be done. And so the offer in, in, in one aspect, you might say, needs to stick his hand into the fire to help. And thus we also have this doctrine, or they have this doctrine of purgatory that's added on top of the mass and penance. Purgatory is purging. Now there was a man here recently who wanted to argue that hell is purgation because the root word for fire in the New Testament is pur, P-U-R, which means to purge. And I distinctly remember that this man thought that he had hit on something very wise and profound, and he said, this is because I have Bible software. And my thought was, well, you need a lot more Bible and a lot less software then. Hell is not purgation. You know why? Because Christ didn't need any help. There's no satisfaction to, for, for what we've done in hell. If Christ didn't do enough, enough was not done. But anyway, I, I think that we need to get away from the terminology of altars. I mean, people want to get to the front of the church as fast as they can to kneel. Well, that's okay. It's okay with me as long as you understand there isn't anything you can do up here that you can't do back there. These steps here are not going to make anybody holy. And so I don't plead for altar calls because I don't want to leave the impression that anybody needs one, that anything needs to be done. It is Christ that satisfied God for you. He went to the altar for you. And so it says, it shall be accepted for you, verse 4. Now, let's make sure that we understand this, that Christ did it all. And maybe you do understand that. And so, coming up here is fine. I'm not going to stop anybody that wants to come up here. But I'm not going to plead for it. And I'm not going to say, well, this sermon didn't work. And our church services aren't getting what needs to be done, done, because there's not people streaming, streaming up here to the front. No, we don't have to do that. That's not necessary. You can do it. That's fine if you want. But that doesn't make make this service better because people do that. The service, the preaching is not ineffective because people don't show up here. Now this, this is just a wonderful truth that shines out of the doctrines of grace. And this is what happens when you shine the spotlight on Jesus and only on Him. And that's what these offerings do. They shine the spotlight entirely on Jesus Christ. And what I'm content to do is stand back in the shadows... And let Christ be seen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that comes out of these sacrifices. Lord, we just got a small, small, small start in all there is to learn and to know. And I realize that some of the things that we've said are a little bit foreign to the ears. 
Maybe a little bit hard to pick up at first, but hopefully, Lord, as we go through this, that, that uh, people here will begin to see this in a better way and increase their understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Scriptures that tell us these things about Him. Thank you, Lord, for those who come tonight and have an interest in knowing more of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.